imagine you're getting ready to take your family to a thrilling event. And maybe it's to see your favorite musical artist. Maybe your team is in the Super Bowl and you're excited to see them uh, play. Maybe your family is standing outside of the gates of Disneyland, tickets in hand. And as those ticket stubs, whether to the Super Bowl or to Disneyland, get scanned, they come up blank. And you scan them again and they come up blank. And they're like, this is not a valid ticket. This, this ticket's a scam. This, this ticket's a fraud. So, someone took you. Millions are spent each year on fraudulent tickets. And that would be sad. It'd be pretty tragic for your young children as they are left outside of Disneyland and you walk back to the parking you paid for, $25. But it's not tragic, really. Tragic would be opening your eyes after death and to realize that your ticket to heaven had been forged, that it was a scam. It's a mistake that many have made. It's a mistake with eternal consequences. How can you be certain that you are going into heaven? How can you be certain that your eternal destiny is with God? It's not enough to pull out your ticket and say, look, it says right here, purchased by the blood of Christ. It says that. Now, that is true. That is true. That is the only way anyone can be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. But it's not enough to say, but look here, this ticket says that. It's true. But does that apply to you? See, God's word, and it is, this is a fascinating passage. This is a hard passage. I think that you will feel the weight of this passage as you are in it with me. God's word this morning tells you how you can have confidence that that is your ticket. It's not someone else's ticket, but that it being purchased with the blood of Christ, that, that your salvation was purchased with the blood of Christ, that you belong to him. And Peter wants the saints to have this confidence. You need this confidence. You can't go up to the gate hoping that it's not a fraud, or that it's not someone else's ticket that was already scanned. Peter was writing to warn believers of the influence of those who had been saved. And I say had because it's clear now that they, whatever happened to them wasn't true conversion. They had claimed to be Christians, but they returned to lives of wickedness. And Peter was concerned that the saints would follow these false prophets into sin and that they themselves would ultimately fall away from the Lord. Now, the last time we were in 2 Peter, we saw Peter's command to the saints to grow, to obey, to be holy. We were in 2 Peter verse 5, and we saw the command to cultivate these qualities and the command there is to in your faith supply build upon your faith supply to your faith bring out from the resources god has given you we looked at those precious resources in verses three and four 
the precious and great promises, the divine nature, everything that God has done for you in Christ Jesus, bring out from that and cultivate these qualities. And these qualities are listed. There's seven of them in verses 5 through 7. It, it, to, it's moral excellence and knowledge, self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. They were supposed to cultivate these seven qualities. And he tells how they were to do this, applying all diligence. It was going to take effort. It was going to take work on their part. Now, Peter had been prepping them for this calling to be serious about their growth. He'd been prepping them for it in verses 3 and 4. And we saw how encouraging these verses started, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust and he he points to these incredible resources that god has given them so that they could change he's confident of them that they have escaped the corruption of the world that is in that, that is by lust and they were not to return to it now in verses 8 through 11 in case motivation is necessary, Peter motivates them. So verses 3 and 4, he talks about the resources. Verses 5 to 7, he talks about what they were to do, though, with those resources. And verses 8 through 11, he motivates them to cultivate those qualities, to be making every effort to supply, to not just kind of get by being saved, but to grow as much as possible, to flourish, to not be okay with having a lemon tree that produces one lemon, or a bud of a lemon, but to have a flourishing tree. So he motivates them in verses 8 to 11 to do, to do the necessary work. I'm going to go ahead and read these right now. He says, For if these qualities, those which I just read to you, are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Now, we haven't been in Second Peter in a few weeks, but I think it's good to look back. We, we looked at these great and precious promises. We looked at these qualities we're to cultivate. And I think it's good to pause and to say, have you been motivated? Have you been motivated by God's grace so far? Have you been motivated by these resources? How have you responded to the command given to grow in these qualities? If someone were to ask you, how have you been growing? Can you say, well, I've been working on this. not we have to ask ourselves why not do you feel responsible to respond have you been compelled by the resources by the command given or have you been lazy have you postponed this cultivation have you said well i know i gotta grow in those but have you just ignored that and not given any attention this is what we're going to at least start with this morning. In 1 Peter 2, verses 8 through 11, 
the Apostle Peter gives three motivations to persuade the saints to make every effort in cultivating these seven qualities so that they will be certain of their entrance into heaven. Okay, so he gives three motivations so that they would make every effort in cultivating these qualities so they will be certain of their entrance into heaven. Now, I know that that might sound scary to some of you. What are you talking about, being certain of my entrance into heaven? Jesus died for me. I remember when I got saved. I prayed a prayer. I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus right now. That's what Peter says. Be diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. In this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. He wants you to be certain. So let's look at the first motivation. If you cultivate these qualities in verses 5 through 7, you will neither become useless nor unfruitful. Straight out of the text there. If you cultivate these qualities, you will neither become useless nor unfruitful. Beginning in verse 8. For if these qualities... And you could go back and, 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 and listen to the message for a fuller understanding of all of them. But moral excellence being like Christ. Knowledge, knowing how to uh, ap- apply God's word. Self-control, it's obvious. Perseverance, a steadfastness under trial because of God's goodness. Godliness, being aware of his presence and living in an appropriate way. Brotherly kindness, the affection you have for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just your family, uh, your family affections, but for all the saints here. And love, that, that, that appropriate response to God and to one another. If you cultivate these qualities, you'll neither become useless nor unfruitful. He says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, these qualities must not, also, not, must not only be present, but also increasing. Now, he's talking more than about being a moral American here. He, he, it's, not, not just, it's not just being able to look at your life and say, well, I do have some kind of affection for some people. I do have some kind of love. I do have some self-control. I don't do all the bad things that I could do. Oh, good, I've got them. He says they, 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 they must be yours, but also increasing. They must exist and overflow, one commentator says. They must be present in abundance. And the idea isn't that you go out and, and you measure them and say, okay, well, at this year, I was a 9.1 in brotherly affection. Let's see if I can get that to 9.15 next year. Or maybe we'll get to a 9.2, just get a little bit better. No, it's just an overall life of holiness where you look at and say, I'm flourishing. I'm flourishing. It's not perfect. There's still lots of room for growth. But if you look at me, you, you know that you, you see God's grace abundant in my life. I'm a changing person. I'm a transforming person. I'm becoming increasingly like Christ. He says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing. So we don't want to leave off that increasing. It'd be, it'd be easy to. If these qualities are yours and you can go around and look for someone, well, I've got a little love there and I've got a little of brotherly kindness and a little godliness and I do not watch every show on TV. I've got some of all this. No, he's, he's talking about them being abundant. These qualities are to be obvious with no obvious de- 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 deficiency in them. Peter continues, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, render is kind of a, a, a weird word, right? We don't often use the word render. We, 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 we might render a CD or render something in the kitchen. Uh, to, to, to render means to cause to be or to cause to become, to make something something. So uh, the, 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 the dictionary used this phrase, probably from some book. Uh, the rains rendered his escape impossible, right? The rains made, it, the, the, the escape became impossible. Now, it's difficult to read in your New American Standard Bible because we're dealing with a double negative here, right? And it just doesn't flow. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful. So you have to wrap your mind around neither unfruitful. What does that mean? And, 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 and the ESV kind of simplifies that in a less, li, a less li, literal way, excuse me, the, uh, by, by getting rid of the double negative, it keeps you from being ineffective or unfruitful. So it stops you from becoming something. So it either makes you something negative or it keeps you from becoming something negative. Peter's saying that, that the presence of these qualities, the increase of these qualities, stops you, the believer, and this is mind-blowing, from becoming useless or ineffective. Now, that word useless is a hard word, right? You don't normally go and say, you're useless. You're like, you just devastated me as a person. You're worthless. You're, you're ineffective. But this is hard language, and it's supposed to be sobering. They're useless because, they, because they're not accomplishing their purpose. If a believer doesn't have these qualities in them, they're broken. It's like an appliance that doesn't work. Why is that still on your kitchen counter? Why have you, you thrown away that broken appliance you know you're never going to fix? It's, 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 it's useless. It's ineffective. It's not doing what it was designed for. That's what a Christian's like who doesn't have these qualities in their life and have them increasing. Now, we're going to see this is not just all doom and gloom here. Peter has a point of saying these hard things. Hopefully we get to it this morning, or else you're going to leave and have a sad week. Okay, so he, he, he says it's neither useless nor, nor unfruitful. Unfruitful, and again, this is a bleak word in Scripture. Fruitlessness in Scripture is a bad thing. To not have fruit is really, it's a symptom of not being saved. And, 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 and Peter had spent time with, with Jesus. He had heard John the Baptist. This is loaded speech. Listen to what John the Baptist says in Matthew 3.10. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Being fruitless is dangerous. Not having these qualities increasing is dangerous. Matthew 13, verse 22, in the parable of the sower, just talking to your brother about this. One on whom seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. In my understanding of that parable of the sower, that's someone who's not saved. They become unfruitful. They don't have the characteristics of someone who is saved. In John 15, verses 5 and 6, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The, the branches come off of a grapevine. The grapevine is the, the, the big center, and the branches are the ones that bearing the grapes. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you are in Christ, you will be fruit-bearing. If you are fruitless, you are not in Christ. If anyone does not abide in me, 
Jesus says. He's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. That is the picture of fruitlessness. It's not just that we're not as productive as we ought to be, and we feel some, some guilt about that. He, he's talking about presence or absence. Is there fruit or isn't there fruit? Are you useless or aren't you? And then it becomes even more serious here at the end of verse 8. For these qualities are yours and are increasing. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful. And now he shows what he's really talking about in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This, this, this true knowledge is the same Greek word we saw in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. It's translated in, as the same way it is here now in verse 3. The true knowledge. This is knowledge that leaves you transformed. This is, this is saving knowledge. This is the knowledge that you have when God opens up your eyes to who Christ is and you turn away from your sins and you put all of your faith in him. It is true knowledge. It is saving knowledge. It is transforming knowledge, effective knowledge. It's not just knowing from a textbook. It is real knowledge. That's why the New American Standard goes for true knowledge. They're going for something here. It's not just knowledge. It's, 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 it's special knowledge. It's knowledge that leaves you different. So what Peter is doing here, really it's wise of him, it's merciful, but it's terrifying. Peter knows that true knowledge of Christ cannot be unfruitful or ineffective. True knowledge of Christ cannot be unfruitful or ineffective. Knowing Christ will result in the presence and abundance of the qualities in verses 5 through 7. Now, I'm not saying that you can't ever find someone on a bad day where they're, where they're not having the self-control that they ought, or the love that they ought, or the brotherly kindness that they ought, where they're not being obedient, not walking in the Spirit. But true knowledge will show itself in fruitfulness and it'll show itself in usefulness. See, what Peter's doing here is he's holding out the unsettling possibility of the impossible. If these qualities are not in abundance in your life, if they're not there in abounding, you will become useless and unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. What looked like spiritual life will be revealed to you as spiritual death. It looked like life, but it wasn't really true knowledge because that's not what true knowledge is. Your, new, your true knowledge, what, what, that, that conversion knowledge, will be revealed not to be knowledge, but kind of just an acquaintance. You thought you had entrance, but it wasn't a real ticket. Now, Peter doesn't question whether the saints to whom he writes have this true saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
he, he, he's not questioning that. There'd be nothing you would read from this, this first chapter that, that he's not questioning. He's got nothing but encouraging things to say to them. In verse 1, they've received a faith of the same kind as ours. This even makes more sense as you go back. You have a faith of equal standing with us. We have the same kind of faith. You have this grace and peace multiplied to you and the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. He's going to write to them as brothers. He talks to them about the divine resources he has. So he's not saying, now you all, I'm going to try to scare you and you need to just go examine if you're saved. He's confident that they're saved, but He's raising an alarm. He's raising a warning. See, he assumes that they're saved, but he also assumes that the prospect of being unfruitful or being useless in, in that knowledge would persuade them to obedience. Okay? That even hearing this would be like, wow, I have got to go back and use those precious resources because that is the last thing in the world that I would want. I would hate to, to, to be unfruitful. I would hate to be ineffective. I, I, I believe I, I truly know Jesus Christ. I want to flourish. See, he, he's confident that this is going to, going to have a positive effect in them. It's going to push them to strive, to thrive, to flourish. He doesn't pull back because they might feel guilty or because they might feel overwhelmed because life is really hard or because they're already so busy. There's too much on the line. He's defining for them what true knowledge is. It is fruitful and it is effective. Now, and I've said it, we, 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 we don't want to miss the fact that Peter's description is not just having these qualities, but increasing in them, abounding in them. He doesn't present an option to them and say, guys, but wait, there's a third way. It's the way of coasting. It's the way of treading water. It's the way of, of mailing it in in your Christian life. You've heard the phrase that C's get, get D, get D agrees, right? C's get degrees. It works better if I don't say that, right? You know, so like you can go to school and get a C and still pass. Do C's get degrees in Christianity? Do C's get degrees in knowing Jesus Christ? That's not, he doesn't want us to leave asking that question. He's like, no, I want to be fruitful. I want to have A's and all these qualities. I want to flourish. I want to bond. I don't want to ask myself what I can get away with. Have you been committed to cultivating these qualities? Have you been making every effort? That is what he challenged us with in verse 5. How do you feel now with this prospect? Like, I, I know many of you, and now there, there may be those of you here this morning who don't know if you have this true knowledge. Maybe you haven't seen evidence in your life, and you're concerned. You can turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. You can put your hope in him. Our hope is only in the finished work of Christ. 
Peter's writing to them, as I'm talking to you, the vast majority of you, though, are confident you've got this true knowledge. So what does that make you want to do? Does that make you want to flourish? Are you committed to making every effort to growing in these qualities? Maybe for some of you, though, you say, well, I've got that knowledge, but I really haven't been working very hard. My life really hasn't been very fruitful. That's, that should bother you. It should terrify you. It's really what Peter's going to go for here, and we'll see it even more in this next section. Don't attempt the impossible. Don't try to be a, 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 a theological, I guess, paradox. Saying I've got true knowledge, but I don't thrive. Okay. Let's a look at the second, the second motivation. If you cultivate these qualities... You will neither be, be, be unfruitful or useless. The second one is, if you cultivate these qualities, you will not be blind. You will not be blind. In verse 9, For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Now, Peter describes here, he who lacks these qualities. And, 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 and again, the... It's really lacking as contrast to having and increasing in that. He's not saying that can you find any evidence of these in your life somewhere to, to make your conscience feel better. But if it's not obvious, if, if you don't go outside and say, yeah, my fruit tree is healthy. If it's looking kind of barren. We should be able to go and say, whoa, I see God changing me. I'm not what I used to be. He says, if these qualities, uh, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. And it's literally, there's no or there. It's blind, being short-sighted. So being short-sighted or nearsighted means you can't see far away. And we know that being short-sighted is less bad than blind. And so the translators are trying to, to, are trying to explain, why does Peter say first blind being short-sighted? Because really short-sighted is less bad than blind. And, 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 and commentators have, have, have tried to understand this. Uh, the idea has the idea, I mean, the word has the idea of, of, of squinting your eyes closed so you can see better. I'm so nearsighted that to read... I have to squint with my eyes. If I don't have my glasses on within inches away, my, my vision's so bad. So I kind of get this being, being blind, being nearsighted, being short-sighted, because I have to squint to even read up close. Uh, but the overall, and, 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 and it could have, have an idea that maybe they are blind because they, uh, the, the word could be used uh, to, 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 to refer to an eye disease that forces the eyes shut. But the idea is there is that you're trying to see, but you can't. Now, Peter helps us, although we don't understand all we could about blindness in the first century world. Uh, this person's blind. He who lacks these qualities is blind. And again, spiritual blindness in Scripture is a very dangerous condition. Jesus used blindness to describe the Pharisees. 
those who, who knew better, but whose hearts and lives didn't match their knowledge. Blindness is dangerous. He described the, 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 the Pharisees as, as being blind, that they were incapable of accurate spiritual appraisals. Like in Matthew 23, verse 24, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You're so worried about uncleanness, but you have much bigger problems. See, being spiritually blind is a desperate condition in Scripture. And Peter explains what this blindness is. Having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So someone who's blind, who, 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 who maybe is so, is so, they can't see far enough away to remember what happened to them. And when he describes the purification of former sins, the purification is, is the cleansing. It's the forgiveness that follows repentance and faith in Christ. Perhaps it's also a reference to, to baptism. And it's not that baptism actually cleanses our sins, but that it is a celebration of the cleansing that God has done. It, it is an admission that we need apart from Christ. We, we, I mean, that apart from Christ, we have no forgiveness of sins. So whether it's looking back to, his, to their baptism or to what God has done in cleansing them and forgiving them of their sins... He says, having forgotten their forgiveness, having forgotten their cleansing, having forgotten their conversion, having forgotten their salvation. And this is something tragic that happens to those who, who don't grow in the qualities of verses 5 through 7. When you look at your life and say, I don't see this godliness. I, I'm not actually concerned about God's presence. My conscience has kind of gotten seared toward, towards God. I, I'm not really interested in my daily life about what he's thinking about me. He's become distant to me. I'm not worried about pleasing him. I'm, I'm not being steadfast. I'm, I'm, I'm being angry about all kinds of trials. I'm, I'm not growing in love. It says, and this is tragic, that they've forgotten their cleansing their forgiveness. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't still communicate the gospel clearly. They, these are still people who could tell someone how to get saved. And maybe they can still tell about their conversion experience. They, they can tell you, well, I got saved when I was a child. I got saved when I, I was a teenager. I got saved after college. They, they can tell you what happened to them. It's not like they, they, like, like they forgot. It's just all blackness now. But, but, it, but their conversion has become to them a date on a calendar. Or, 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 or a month in their, in their lifetime where they, where, where, where they still say, yeah, I pass from death to life, but there's no longer any present enjoyment. There's no longer a celebrating of the fact that they've been reconciled to God. It's become a transaction that happened in past tense rather than I know Christ. He loved me and he gave himself for me becomes something, as they forget their, their, their cleansing, their purification, it becomes something that they're, that they're, not even, they're not even really confident of. They're holding on to that ticket, but they don't know if it's fraud or not, really. They're like, well, I'm hoping this ticket will get me in. I remember being baptized. But I've been lacking all these qualities. If you look at my tree, it doesn't look healthy. Forgetting our purification 
is, is demonstrated by and is paralleled by, it happens at the same time, often, I would say almost always, a return to the sins that you were saved from. Going to sins that, that, that one time you would have run from. And now you've become comfortable with. You know. And Peter describes that this is what happens to the false prophets. And we will study th- th- this passage more because it may be a warning as well to them not to let the same thing happen. In 2 Peter 2 verses 20 to 22. It describes them after they have escaped the defilements of the world. So that's that cleansing. Having escaped the defilements of the world, by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they, 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 they looked saved. They are again entangled in them and are overcome in those defilements. The last state has become worse for them than the first. They're worse off than they were. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandments handed, handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Peter's concern of the influence of those who've done exactly what he's describing here, who have gone past to their former sins, who have gone back, who have forgotten their, their purification. They've forgotten their cleansing. They've forgotten their whole conversion experience. And this is the pitiable condition of confessing saints who don't grow or who return to former sins. And I say pitiable that I've been there. And maybe you've been there. Maybe some of you are there now. You know what God's word says about bearing fruit. You know what it says about Christ being Lord. You know what it says about the transforming nature of having new life in Christ and of conversion. And you know that you're a walking, uh, 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 excuse me, I never know what words I'm going to sit around, a a contradiction. That you're a walking contradiction. You, you, You say, well, I've got new life. And you can look back and say you've been saved and you know what, Christ expects, but you're not living that. You've been set free, but you feel enslaved. Or you say, I've been washed, but you feel so dirty as that sin is still there. And this could happen with any number of sins. Maybe it's holding on to bitterness and not being willing to repent of that towards someone. It's just festering there. Or maybe you've been unwilling to, to you're, you're, you're walking in life with someone, but you've not been willing to share the gospel with them because you're ashamed of it. Or maybe you've grieved God's spirit by looking at so many images on the internet that God hates. Maybe you've had so many outbursts of anger, wasted so many hours surfing the internet, watching television or whatever, and you just feel guilty all the time. You, you've forgotten your purification. Maybe you go and you ask forgiveness from God. And you want forgiveness, you want reconciliation, but you go without any real intention of changing. See, you might have a historic confidence of being saved, 
but you lack a current confidence. Because the contradiction is just too obvious. And ultimately, you don't know who you are. Am I clean? Am I forgiven? See, if the only thing you're clinging to is, but I've got a ticket. It says, purchase with Jesus' blood there. What Peter's saying is, if your life doesn't match up, you are not going to have confidence. Now, I know that, that this, is, this is maybe troublesome. Because our, what is our hope? Our hope is in Christ alone. Right? Someone is not saved by good works. They're only saved through faith in Christ alone. We're not talking about how someone gets saved. We're not talking about how someone passes from death to life. We're talking about the enjoyment of that confidence that I have new life in Christ. Living this way is horrible. To not, you know, just to be clinging to say, well, I know that Jesus died for me, but I'm going to kind of continue on not really flourishing. I'm going to continue on feeling pretty guilty most of the time. It doesn't have to be this way. If you're in Christ Jesus, you have the resources to cultivate these qualities. You have the ability with him living in you to be making every effort. This is not about you becoming perfect, but this is about you abounding and increasing these qualities, not lacking them. You don't have to be blind. You don't have to be short-sighted. You can be confident of your forgiveness, and not because you prayed a prayer in the past, but because these qualities are yours and they're flourishing in your life. See, your cleansing will manifest itself in purity. Your justification will reveal itself in sanctification. So this, uh, Peter is pushing you to say, but that's impossible. And, you're, and he's like, yes, that is impossible. It is impossible to be born again and to be fruitless. It is impossible to be blind and saved. And yet, he is sympathetic, too, knowing that, that this is the consequences. If you live like someone who's not saved, if, if you're pushing the God who you say that you love aside in your life, if you're not all in, if you're not picking up your cross and following him, if you're not denying yourself, if you're not cultivating the fruit of the Spirit in your life, you're not going to know if you're saved, that's God's grace to make you do what we'll talk about more next week. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Make certain you're elect. Prove you've been chosen by God. And, and we will explore those verses. Of course, you can't go back in time and say, I'm going to get God to choose me. It's about you confirming to yourself that God has chosen you. Because when you aren't flourishing and you don't have these qualities, you will be a confused Christian. I don't know if there's any of you here this morning who are like that. Really, your, your life isn't flourishing. And I don't mean those of you who, who have a really sensitive conscience and you see a sin there. I'm, I'm not talking about looking at every sin and saying, am I saved? I'm talking about where you're not growing in these qualities. You've not been concerned about them. You've not been making every effort. 
It is God's grace in your life right now. If you are asking, am I fruitful? Am I useful? Have my sins been forgiven? I'm trying to wrap this up because I'm completely off my nose at this point. It is, I don't want you to be there, not sure if you're saved or not. I think that's what Peter's talking about, having forgotten purification from former sins. To, 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 to be someone who says they're saved, but it's not growing, and it's, it's been months. Maybe you can look back, it's been years, been years. Peter tells us what to do. As long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Practice these things. Exert effort. Justification will lead to sanctification. If you have been forgiven of those former sins, it is time to use these resources to make every effort. From this, uh, if you have a spiritual need, if you, it is a great time to be talking to your care group leaders, to be talking to one another, to be so, talking to someone who is, who is further along the Christian walk than you are, and to say, you know, honest, I don't, I don't know if my sins have been cleansed or not. I spend, I spend days wondering if they've been cleansed or not. Because I keep going back to the same sins again and again. I don't know if I can just say I'm a fruitful Christian. Talk to someone. Allow someone to, to minister the hope of the gospel to you. To say, yes, your ticket is written only with the precious blood of Christ. But now let's walk together so you can demonstrate in your life that that ticket belongs to you. I'm not talking about putting hope in anything else besides Jesus Christ. But the evidence of that hope will be fruitfulness of these qualities in your life. Let's pray. Uh, Father, by, by, by your grace, I trust that uh, we have done a diligent work with the text this morning. And I hope that everyone leaves being able to explain it. Uh, and if not, Lord, I pray that there be lots of good conversations afterwards. Father, I pray that you would um, be giving us, us wisdom. Peter, Peter's pushing us. You're challenging us to not be okay saying we're saved, having conversion experience without flourishing, without being fruitful, without being joyful about our obedience. Father, we want to be those kinds of Christians whose lives overflow in these qualities who make every effort, who are working hard at growth. Lord, we want to be the, the kinds of people who, who aren't um, um, subverting our confidence in the finished work of Christ by living a contradictory lifestyle. So, Father, I do pray that you would, um, you would be heavy on consciences who are not flourishing and not working hard. I pray, Lord, that you would bring grace to those who have been working hard, who are maybe super sensitive and are working hard at repenting. I pray, Father, for those who, who are hard-hearted, Lord, and even those who are holding to some kind of prayer in the past, some kind of conversion experience, Lord, that they would ask really hard questions whether they have this true knowledge of Jesus Christ, which Peter so clearly says uh, turns into fruitfulness. We just pray for, for lots of wisdom, lots of healthy conversations afterwards. In Jesus' name, amen.